Welcome back to the Film Hall Podcast. I'm Trevor. I'm Raul. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a scientist. And every week we watch a movie. And then we get together and talk about it. And this week we watched... What's the Spanish title? The, uh... I want to hear you say it. I, I don't even know it. Like, I, I don't have it in front of me. Okay. I'll just the English it. title is The Exterminating Angel. The Spanish title is El Angel Exterminador. But, anyways... The Exterminating Angel is a 1962 Mexican supernatural surrealist film written and directed by uh, Luis Benuel. How do you say his name? Benuel. Ben, Ben what? Benuel. Benuel? Uh Uh-huh. Benuel. Okay. Benuel. Go ahead. Sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, Starring Sylvia Pinal, produced by... Gustavo Alitraste. And the movie follows a group of wealthy guests finding themselves unable to leave after a lavish dinner party. Um, the movie is sharply satirical and allegorical and contains a view of aristocrac- aristocracy. What am I trying to say there? Aristocracy. Ar- aristocracy, suggesting mm-hmm. they harbor savage instincts and unspeakable secrets. Okay. Hmm. Considered one of the best 1,000 films by the New York Times. Oh, wow. Very selective list. Yeah. So why did why did we pick this movie? Why was this on our list? This is one of my favorite sort of weird foreign, um, like, avant-garde movies. What a... What country is uh, Luis from? I believe Mexican. But it seems like he spent a lot of time in his formative years living in Europe, in, in France specifically. Mm. Sort of bumping elbows with a lot of uh, like like surrealist culture. Salvador Dali was like a person that he's worked with before. On that movie, actually, that we saw. Oh, Salvador Dali was involved in this? In the, not this movie, but in the short film that I put in the pre-show. Oh, okay. Which was the, um, the guy in the desert meditating on top of the pillar? No, no, it was the first one I showed. It was like 15 minutes. Oh, right. The, uh. Silent film. Yeah, that guy who gets like super horny with that woman. And then, like, what do you? What else even happens in that? He like shoots himself. No, there's I, like I two, There's like two of him at, at the end, and he's yeah, I like, couldn't. I couldn't tell you what the plot of that is. <laughs> it's all over the place. There's a few title cards that are in French, and so I obviously can't read like silent film, right? And I can't read them, but I don't think that would have helped much. Yeah, <laughs> untangle that story. I I feel similarly about this movie to a lesser degree um but i i spent some time re-watching it this afternoon and taking some notes be like all right i'm gonna like crack the case on this movie and i did not my my whole plan was to come into this discussion without having watched any exterminated angel explained videos or reading uh-huh. anything 
just trying to learn what I can by watching it a second time and trying to look at it harder. And I just didn't. <laughs> I just Are you did. sure you looked at it hard enough? Man, I'm so hard looking at this movie right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't like I've got some ideas as to what's going on, but I, I don't know. Based on what I know about like Salvador Dali, though, it's just like the guy's like uh, weird for the sake of weird, which is right. <laughs> so maybe there's there's not a ton to unpack there. I don't think yeah, I don't think surrealism in general uh, preoccupies itself with like hidden meaning. Right. So it makes you think it does, like you. You look at it on the surface and you're like, what is all this? Like, what does it mean? Like, what's the, uh, like, what's the code to unlock the meaning of this movie? And it might just be strange. Yeah, it just might be completely, I'm trying to find a word that's not surreal to describe this surreal movie. Yeah. (laughs) I do like that though. I mean, like surreal by itself has value. It's surrealism by itself has value where I, I've heard it described as logic that lends itself to a dream, which is a very specific type of fantasy in supernatural supernaturalism and storytelling. Like mm-hmm. it's not like wizards and, and Jedi and stuff like that. It's um, and it's not necessarily quite just straight art experimental film although it's closer to that it's uh i don't know it's just like off logically than up than other things yeah i mean i think describing it as like dream logic is probably the best way to do it like if you look like at a salvador dolly painting um you know like melted clocks and whatnot all these strange imageries it just makes your mind kind of like skip a beat yeah We've talked about Just like dream it's logic. So strange. We've like, talked about dream logic before, which is fun. Where it's being able to capture the essence of what it actually feels like to be dreaming is pretty unique and cool. Right. It's, it's it, di- that was it's in the different. context. Um, that was in the context of David Lynch, right? Yeah, I think so. Who I think you could easily describe as a surrealist. I don't know if people have or not. Yeah, I think so. Uh. But it's not like um, works that are super fueled by like drugs, you know, like psychedelic hallucinogenic stuff and artwork. There's a really specific kind of um, feeling that's evoked with something that's more dreamy as opposed to something that's motivated by some sort of substance. And I, I'm, this is all like intangible uh perception based on like any one person but i feel like dreams feel or like dreamy motivated content like david lynch or this or salvador dali like feels very distinct from any other kind of uh like weird film yeah i agree they seem to be going after that like the kind of experience that you have, like when you have a dream and you try to explain it and it just doesn't make sense. 
Yeah. Like if you if you ever try to tell a dream story and you say something like, um, I was at uh, Grand Central Park, except that it was actually my grandmother's house. Right. Um, I had an experience like this in a dream I just had last night, actually. Um, oh, this is like uh, this is a good little tangent that is maybe relevant. I've had I had my like first like nightmare in a long time last night. Oh, really? Yeah. But it like if you hear me describe it, which I will, it doesn't make any sense as to why it's it's a nightmare. But I was like at Grace's family's house and kind of like what you said. I knew it was her family's house, but it I've been to her family's house. It looks nothing like that. So locations are weird. Like the space you're in physically is not what that space is in reality, but like your brain, your brain, like a sign in some kind of geographic information to that. Right. It, like totally independent of what you're physically standing in. Right. Uh, and I was laying on a couch or a bed or something that felt very similar to the actual bed I was in. And so I could conceivably think that, like, I was awake during this moment. And I saw a, um, a vent on the wall that was just, like, beyond the bed, like, by a few feet. There was just, like, a vent on the wall. And there was a hand, like, kind of resting, like, on outside of the vent, just kind of, like, draped over, like, from inside the vent, like there was a person in there or something. Uh-huh. And I saw it, and because I was at Grace's family's house, in quotes, I was like, oh, that's like one of Grace's brothers, for whatever reason. And I thought it was funny at first. I was like, oh, one of his, one of her brothers is like in the vent over there. Like, that's hilarious. And I was like laughing. And then for whatever reason, I realized that it was not one of her brothers. It could not have been one of her brothers, my that was just like what my brain told me and then like the hand like kind of turned towards me and started pointing at me like from like it kind of extended itself a little bit from beyond the vent uh-huh. and I interpreted that as being like in extreme existential danger that I had discovered that that was not in fact her brother and that like the hand had noticed me and in the dream, I started just, like, moaning for help. I was like, no, no, no. And Grace reports that I, like, was doing that in my sleep. And I, like, Oh, no. And I was like, I woke up shortly thereafter. That's awful. And she, <laughs> she was like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. My immediate reaction when I woke up was I thought that I scared her by yelling no. So I was like, uh-huh. I'm, I'm sorry that I had a scary dream. Damn. Yeah, so Grace, we're just going to have you cut out that entire dream sequence because people don't like to hear about dreams. What do you mean? We just watched a whole movie that's a dream. JK, JK. People love dreams. I also had another. Yeah. Can I read you one thing? Another one? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just really quick. I sent this to Justin this morning because I thought it was funny. Um, I... I like write some of my dreams down, but I sent this to him. Uh, 
I had a dream about a version of the future where robots are totally integrated. So old depictions of robots, like when people dress up as robots, is seen as racist. We call it metal face. A metal face? Yeah. That's pretty cool, dude. That's cool, right? Yeah. Metal face. I dreamed about it. Certainly brought upon the, the the fact that we watched the Matrix earlier and the whole Animatrix. Yeah, uh, that probably short stories too. about yeah, like but robot man, civil rights essentially. I think the term metal face as like a racist slur from the future is so accurate. Right? I like that. I like that. Like I In need Star to... Wars they use the term clanker. Mm -hmm. A lot. Like the clone soldiers, I'll use that for the droids. Mm -hmm. I think that has like a lot of, like as a word, like phonetically, is a, a perfect slur. Mm -hmm. Clanker. Say it with like a little bit of venom in your voice. Clanker. Fucking clankers. Fucking clanker. Clanker. Uh, anyways, those are my dreams. <laughs> Great. But um, do you want to talk a little bit about the plot of the movie and <laughs> what exactly makes it surreal? Because we've been talking a lot about surrealism. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk about. So the let's item talk a little bit about the definition of surrealism. <laughs> no, 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 no more. Um, I've but got this movie. I've got some bullets under show notes if you want to look at that at all. I don't know if that's helpful to you or not, but. It's there. Uh, I'll take a look. Okay. But maybe we can just run through, because I think we got to get through like the plot of the movie. Mm -hmm. And let's not string it out. Let's just like say what happens. So yeah, the movie well, is... Oh. I was just going to say, like I don't think there is much to this plot. And I, I kind of felt that way when we started watching it on Thursday. Uh, I was like, okay, they can't leave the room for some unexplained reason and like their like quality of life is devolving because of that and that just kind of is the whole that's the whole movie until they get out at the end right 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 there's really nothing like nothing is revealed about like why they're there or what's happening or there's not, not even necessarily like big uh, character revelations. There's like weird stuff that happens, but none of it is this super cohesive connective tissue about like what's the point of them being in the room. So I think you can distill this movie down to group of rich people go to a dinner party. They can't leave for some unknown reason, this one room, and then at the end, they are able to get out, also unexplained, and that's it. Exactly. That's what it is. Okay, I think we did pretty good there. <laughs> Let's wrap it up. No, All but right. I, I'll say this. I think that the, um, the part of the movie, the, the first night that they stay there, um, up until the next morning, you know, for a few scenes is like the best part of the movie. Just that transition from what was a very formal dinner party, you know, like a social occasion, mm -hmm. uh, that transforming into the conundrum that they found themselves in is very interesting. 
Yeah. I will say, like, I think the way it deals with why these people are trapped in the room is a lot of fun. Like, I think that uh, that clip that you included, what was that movie with Owen Wilson that you included in the uh, show? Midnight in Paris. Do you want to explain that clip a little bit? Oh, sure, sure. So um, I showed a clip from Midnight in Paris, which is like a movie that Woody, um, Woody Allen made about 10 years ago, where uh, Owen Wilson is this American guy who's like really in love with Paris, specifically like 1920s Paris, mm-hmm. um, and finds himself kind of like weirdly supernaturally time traveling back to that time and like bumping shoulders with like Ernest Hemingway and Salvador Dali Mm-hmm. Um, all those like intellectual bigwigs, and he bumps into uh, Luis Benoit, the director of this movie, at a party, and he's like, "Oh, Mr. Benoit, I got an idea for a movie for you to think about." He's like, um, "It's like these aristocratic people are at a dinner party, find themselves in a dinner party, but then are unable to leave." And then, um, uh, as you see, and as this happens, like they degenerate into what they actually are animals and all their uh-huh. humanity leaves them and mm-hmm. it's a very funny scene Luis Benoit is like uh, well I don't understand why don't they just uh, why don't they just leave the room I don't I don't get it mm-hmm. why don't they just leave yeah and I think that's like a perfect summation of how anyone else feels watching this movie because it's not like uh him saying like how do they leave the room like it's not like he went off and wrote the script and then solved that problem he just took that confused uh response to owen wilson's idea and translated it into this weird surrealist thing where it actually it makes as little sense as it sounds it's a little more cohesive towards the beginning which is why i like the beginning more than the ending what do you mean uh, everything before the characters openly acknowledge that they're somehow stuck in the room mm-hmm. is golden to me. Anything after that, it's like seems like nothing could be holding them there except for something supernatural. But before then, yeah. the reasons that they can't leave the room are like social. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of, uh, I guess I kind of like that. Um. I don't necessarily, it obviously has to be something supernatural towards the end, but it's not like very tactilely supernatural, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's, you watch the movie and you're like, okay, they're stuck in the room. Why can't they leave? And there's even some scenes like early on where like a character is standing like right at the edge of the door. And if this movie were made today by, you know, some regular director there would be like a force field right that like pulsates when you try to cross the barrier of the door but there's none of this music that kind of that like turns on yeah it's just the character kind of stares at the archway of the door and just cannot bring themselves to cross it it's uh the best way i can describe it is like existential crises that people have when they try to leave it's not there's nothing physical in their way 
they could definitely leave if they wanted to, but there's some kind of, and it's not even like they're overwhelmed with emotion or, I don't know, some other like psychotic reason for not wanting to leave. It's just like there's something in the air of the movie that is not allowing them to leave. And so for that reason, it feels as close to like a real encounter with something supernatural as anything else yeah you know I, what I, mean? I was gonna say that it seems super realistic because um assuming that you don't believe like in ghosts and stuff like that or anything supernatural mm-hmm. uh real world supernatural encounters are nothing more than like people uh facing like obstacles that like either they imagine like that they imagine essentially yeah I mean, like, like you think you think that like the woods outside your house are haunted, and you're absolutely sure that that's the case because you hear weird noises. Right. Nothing about your environment is imposing anything on you, but you're, you know, in that situation, you would be terrifying yourself. Yeah. It's a. I don't know how to describe this. Without a. Uh just repeating like what i just said so guys we're gonna have you just copy and paste (laughs) um trevor's previous statement and just put it right after that (laughs) but i I guess I, i i would say real encounters with the supernatural if they happened would logically not make any sense so these characters kind of standing at the archway of the door and not being able to cross it for no known reason and for no one to just say like, Hey, what we should just leave. Like someone try and leave, like just do it right now. Uh, like the reason that they don't do that is unexplained. Uh, none of the logic of the, the way the characters behave makes any sense, but that would seem to totally align itself with how a, real supernatural encounter would manifest itself which is yeah uh, something ununderstandable yeah i will say that i like reading this movie as like not supernatural like i like thinking of this movie and trying to explain it completely in like human terms okay which is what i think really helps with the supernatural angle i think the fact that you can take an event and um explain it away with like rational thought but still have it be supernatural at its core is like a real uh, a real good thing that the movie can do. Yeah, and I think this is something that like, m- maybe this is a characteristic of uh, surrealist stuff in general, but like, that's how I feel about, you know, David Lynch stuff, um, like what we watch with El Topo, where it's, I don't maybe it's just something about something that is very strange and weird on film and how that can be interpreted as something supernatural it feels more realistically supernatural because of how uh unaligned it is with our traditional understanding of what supernatural stuff looks and sounds like yeah does that make sense i I would i think so it's like when uh 
when movies that are about supernatural things like try to show these uh try to show something supernatural on screen they'll usually show you know visual cues to kind of alert the audience to that fact Mm -hmm. so whooshing or like creaking uh shadows moving around but real honest to god supernatural events don't have any of those kind of external qualities to them right a person seeing a ghost doesn't see anything it's just like the thing is it's all internal to the mind yeah and so so this movie i think does a really good job of kind of like towing the line between supernatural and realistic in a way that's really satisfying yeah and I think that's where the surrealism comes from. Mm-hmm. That's where it's born. Mm-hmm. But I want I want to get back more to the the beginning of the movie. Okay. I want to talk more about the mechanism by which the people stay in the room. Um, okay. Be- before we get to the beginning, I just like want to point out that more towards the end, there is a couple scenes where people are like well, we should just leave the room right now. Why don't we all just, why don't we just leave? Uh-huh. And in one of those scenes, what happens is that somebody says that, and then another person says, why don't you leave? Why don't you get out of the room? Mm-hmm. And then nothing happens. So what you take this very reasonable sounding pr- proposition, we should just leave the room. That will literally solve our problem. Uh-huh. And it's turned into a sort of like uh person versus person altercation now it's like a a dick swimming contest about like oh no it's not what you should do it first if you're the one that's saying it i'm not gonna do it you should do it Uh uh-huh once again it turns into this social obstacle now now the person doesn't want to leave because the other person won't follow their own advice yeah and these these kind of things are like super interesting to me. So, back to the beginning of the movie. Well, the, uh, the whole reason that they. Sorry, go ahead. I, I've got some. Thoughts, no, go but... ahead. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna dive into like the beginning of the movie, so you can go ahead. Well, uh, I really like how this happens like several times. I think where someone is attempting to leave, and this is towards the beginning of the movie, like during the first night that they're there right or maybe the second where people are attempting to leave but there's always something like some kind of social obstacle in their way so one person is like i'm going to leave and then they're like where's my uh coat like i mm-hmm. like where did i put yeah. my coat and they're like oh let me go get your coat and then that person like is then sidelined by some other conversation uh or it's like, oh, we can't leave right now because it's the most, like, it's the best time of night. It's, like, the most intimate time of night where everybody's having a good time. Like, it'd be... Yeah, we don't want to be bad sports. Right. And so it's, it's a, it's almost as if we, like, those social responses to things, if you could list them out as, uh, like, a set of commands or like responses not unlike a a computer or a robot where it's just oh it's like 4 a.m like is should we leave or not that's 
Like, this is a good time to party, but it's also, like, really late. It just seems like everybody's social uh, calculator in that situation is just, like, malfunctioning. Like, they can't... They can't overcome the very basic need of leaving the room with just these, I don't know, these very, like, simple obstacles. And I... I don't know how to explain it any better than that, but it just seems like, well, if there is, they're slaves to this, uh, like social structure that they've created for themselves. Maybe I'm like, let me twist that a little bit. I wouldn't say that they're like, um, I wouldn't say that they're failing to leave the room. I would say that like their social responsibilities is pushing them in different directions. So it's not like in their minds it's they're trying to be the best guests possible and the host is trying to be the best host possible. At any moment, you can't really point to anything going amiss. Like, yeah, they're there pretty late, but mm-hmm. uh, things are still pretty jovial. And so y- you keep it going. I mean, you don't want to be the first person to leave a party, right? Right. Because you might inexplicably... Um, signal to every single other person in the room that it's time to leave now right and so there's a little bit of social pressure to stay mm-hmm. i mean that's all fine that that's all normal mm-hmm. the thing about this movie that makes it sort of reach into that supernatural realm is that so many of these social forces which in themselves are completely normal and okay seem to be aligned in such a way that this completely arbitrary condition is met that the people stay in the room. Yes. This breaks down once they like can say, once they acknowledge openly that they seem to be stuck in the room. Uh-huh. That crosses into more supernatural territory. Yeah. But everything before then, I am just like so fascinated by how it works. The scene like where they're uh, ending the party and instead of going home, the host is like, uh, we don't want to make our guests feel uncomfortable uh, we don't want to make them feel like they're unwelcome here and that they're loitering and overextending yeah. our hospitality. We should ourselves um, like take our jackets off, which I guess is a big deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. I didn't really understand that. Yeah, we should take our jacks- jackets off, make ourselves more comfortable, so that our guests feel free to do the same. Yeah, I think it. I think for me that highlights how arbitrary social norms are in the first place. How we uh, we're like, oh, everyone else is staying, so so we should stay, or like everyone else has determined that we're we cannot leave this room, so obviously like we can't leave this room. It it it, it just feels like the the biggest obstacle that all these people face is totally self uh self-inflicted by this oversaturation of respect for social etiquette if that makes right. sense like right. it it's to me it feels like a critique of like why we respect like group uh so uh, social niceties anyways when you're operating at like that level so, like, if I want to leave a party, like, I should just leave the party, like, whenever I want to. But, like, 
as everybody knows, it's totally influenced by the time it is or like how many other people have left or all these other like social factors. But or you have to prepare half an hour beforehand, kind of like making the last rounds to prepare for your departure. And so it's that like condition of self-imposed rules that is just cranked up to the max to where now it's preventing people from actually like getting home it's actually holding them physically hostage right and um one really interesting thing about this movie is that it makes a great like quarantine movie because a lot of people very much like the characters in the movie also cannot like leave their house for like intangible abstract reasons and so you know sometimes i'll go weeks and weeks without leaving my apartment or even like seeing like the outdoors really sure that's more extreme than my situation more extreme i mean yeah Yeah. i mean grocery i don't need groceries i go to grocery shopping like every month or so um that's basically it yeah do you have a laundry machine in your in your apartment? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy, man. Weeks without going outside. Yeah, easily. Wow, dude. I at least have like a deck, you know. Like, yeah, you have you're you're really close to the outdoors. Like I can just place. but I, I live in an apartment. Yeah. It's like a yeah. I have like so it takes effort to go outside. It's like going down sets of stairs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It feels much more disconnected. Yeah, I have like a good, I, I'm going to say like 500 square feet in my backyard to just hang out if I wanted to. Just just stand in the middle of <laughs> What's Trevor doing? I'm just outside. He's hanging out in his 500 square feet. I'm just like, I'm walking laps around my backyard. Yeah. I need but, outdoors um, time. Like I played this kind of like mental game of like what if um some kind of weird supernatural um constraint is put on me right now that says like that i can't go outside but much like the characters in the movie for the first half Mm -hmm. they're unaware of that constraint right in their own minds there's nothing wrong going on there's just like a couple of like social faux pas occurring yeah but nothing out of you know out of the ordinary so imagine what it would be like if you yourself were like supernaturally constrained it wouldn't feel supernatural uh-huh it would just feel it would just feel like a like a, a series of coincidences all things that happen within like the natural realm yeah i, w- I would like to point out a um i want to shift gears here a little bit and kind of dig into some actual scenes uh huh. Um, if that's cool with you, that is cool with me. So, I feel like it, there's several points in this movie where it gives you kind of uh, red herrings as to what's like what's actually going on, because like early on in the movie, before any of the weirdness really starts, where everybody realizes they can't leave, like a few weird things happen. So. One thing, do you have the movie up by chance? 
Um, I can get it up real fast. I've got some time codes, like a whole list of time codes that are pretty interesting. Okay. So, um, at 1530, uh, two of the guests are, like, they communicate with each other through these little hand signals. Um, and I think this helps too when you, you sort of rewatch the movie and you kind of understand what's going on. You're kind of like looking for clues as to what's, what's actually happening. What's the reason for them staying there? And every like possible thing that I think could be interpreted as a clue is, is exactly not that. And so it makes uh it makes that significant thing like even more insignificant because you realize it's just it's it's just in there for no reason so with the hand signals thing these two dudes do these little hand signals to each other and they say something about like oh i didn't expect to find a fellow brother here or like a, a like a fraternity brother here and it makes you think that like oh these guys are in some kind of cult together and you're uh-huh. like, oh, maybe this cult has like some sort of special, you know, magical powers uh, that's causing these people to stay in this room. And really, all it is is they're just like Freemasons. They're just a couple of Freemasons. Uh, really? Yeah, and, and that's re- I. That's I re- never re- noticed this. Yeah, because uh, I, I was just like trying to find like what are the like what are anything that could be, um. I guess that that time code is actually like 1440 is more appropriate for the hand signals. But um yeah, it doesn't like it doesn't manifest in anything. Like the them being like communicating with his hand signals means nothing until later in the movie when someone makes like a a call, they like yell and they're like what is that someone else is like what does that mean and they're like it's the masonic uh, call for help, cry for help. And, oh, that's right. And so that reveals that those two dudes were just Freemasons, and that's what that's what that whole thing means. But that is completely like insignificant to the reason that they're in the room. Similarly, at uh, let me see here. Maybe uh, a little bit after that, with the piano, let's see here. There's a woman with, uh, like, chicken feet in her purse. Do you remember this? Yeah. Or, I don't know if it's chicken feet, but it's, like, bird feet of some kind. But this happens like early on in the movie where they're uh, they're listening to a fellow guest play um, a musical piece on the piano and this woman like opens her purse and it's revealed that there's like feathers and chicken feet inside her purse. And if you're re-watching this and you're trying to think of reasons as to why they're stuck in the room, you're like, oh, like there's something weird prior to all the weird stuff happening. Like, what what does that mean? And that also, like, wraps itself up later in the movie where they use 
the chicken feet to perform some kind of like mystic ritual like these three women try to like use it as some kind of ritual to like i don't know cast like a an anti-spell or like get themselves out of the room and it just doesn't right. it just doesn't work like nothing happens it's just a little exercise that they do and so huh. my my ultimate point here is that Several, like, just fucking weird things for the sake of being weird happen and try to make you think that that's the cause for uh, the main plot point of the movie, but none of it is. It's just misleading you the whole first third of the movie. I, I wonder if those two things are something that are, like, supposed to be symbolic, uh, like, like purposely, purposely so. Yeah, I don't know. Um, like, it's like the the chicken feet thing to me, like, stood out because I remember seeing that um, this person with the chicken feet is obviously very, um, what's the word, like, superstitious, like, believes in all that kind of superstitious stuff. Yeah, definitely. But ultimately, that um, it, it comes to no aid for them. Like, they do the ritual and whatever they want, but it just it has no magic in it. It has no force to it. Right. And then maybe likewise, like the guys belonging to the Freemasons, like that's something that I think has a lot of like mystical connotations to it. Am I right? Yeah, I'd say so. I feel like people don't talk about the Freemasons without like also like bringing up a bunch of other bullshit. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, and but even though there's that, they're like, um, yeah, Freemason call, but like there's nobody here to help us. There's not a Freemason within earshot. So once again no help to the people. Uh. Yeah, something like that. So uh it I just thought that that was interesting because a typical movie, you know, would drop actual hints with uh those characters and those affiliations, but if you follow if you follow that thread I feel like there's like a, a few threads and maybe that's just two of them. But if you follow all of those threads to their uh, end point in the movie, none of them explain anything. Right. Uh, right. And I, I actually find that a good thing. Like I spent a lot of my time like actually trying to to trace the source of the problem. And there's just that's a thankless task. Yeah. But that makes the movie a little bit more enjoyable, in my opinion. The agreed. The only early on hint that seems to mean something is the fact that all of the house workers felt it in their bones that like something was wrong and they, they like, desperately needed to leave. Yeah, because the uh, the kind of the primary butler, like the main servant that eventually also gets trapped in the room with them. Yeah. Which is kind of, he's an interesting character because it only happens to him afterwards. Like, he, he's able to pass the barrier a few times, I guess, before he was locked into. Right. He He's there, like, in the house the, the first night, but it's only until, like, the next morning where he's locked in place. What do you think about, like, the, the servants leaving early? It was kind of like the way that in some disaster movies that like the animals can sense the danger before the humans well someone literally like makes that analogy later on in the movie someone is like 
it's the same way that like rats flee a, sh- a sinking ship you know yeah uh so I, I don't know what that means if it means anything but you're you're right and the the servants for whatever reason had like a sixth sense to like gtfo before anything yeah. went down almost a little derogatory uh, even later on in the movie, they make like that connection again. One of the rich ladies was like, I don't think that like peasants or poor people can feel pain as much as we can, which was, I guess, a sentiment oh. that people had back in the day. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I think that's what they were going for is that is that that was the case. I think that like for some reason, these people are like much more sort of grounded and yeah. mysticism or something. Well, I think like. Uh, exclusivity and elitism is like a big theme here where oh yeah uh at one point like one of their fellow people who are are trapped in the room right uh, i think there's several people who die or become like very <laughs> deathly ill like while yep. in the quarantine of the room and i i can never keep like any of the characters straight they all like blend together to me i don't know if you feel the same way but (laughs) like don't know who same i don't know who anybody is uh but then after many rewatchings there's only like a handful of characters that i can keep straight and then the rest of the mesh and maybe that's intentional actually now that i'm thinking about it but one of them is like i guess a like a musical uh like conductor or composer or something and I remember mm. one of the characters at some point saying, like, oh, that guy is very sick, but, I mean, let's be realistic. Like, what's one less music conductor? You know, like, who cares? And it's just them kind of deciding, like, who's uh, who's worthy of surviving and who isn't. And so that seems to tie itself nicely to, like, this elitist view of how the peasants knew to get out of there first, but they still uh, have disdain for the like for the servants. I don't know. It seems yeah. to like whatever that sentiment is of um, elitism and how it lines up with like who's worthy of life and not. Uh, that seems to be like a consistent theme throughout throughout this movie, and I I, I don't really know how to extrapolate that beyond just like okay the servants left and like they don't value some people's lives more than others yeah to me that i took that as just like a lot of the movie is is devoted to the self-bickering within the group and sort of like the alliances that break out like as soon as like they're they know that they're stuck with one another Mm -hmm. they start arguing and fighting and like not being you know not not being united as a group of people instead of like fighting with one another and so in particular i think the guy that said that about the conductor was like that one guy that was really rude and aggressive all throughout the kind of fat guy with like the tiny mustache yeah i think Uh he was the same guy that wanted to kill the host because he figured that if they killed the host they would be good to go Uh uh-huh yeah wild stuff you want to know um, a cool little like error that I noticed in the movie? What? Let me say that again because I knocked the mic. Do you want to know a cool error that I noticed in the movie? 
I do. <laughs> At time code 10 minutes and 25 seconds, the boom mic is visible in the shot. It's when uh, Lucia, the host, is speaking to her servants in the kitchen. Can you uh, say the timestamp again? 10 minutes, 25 seconds. At the okay, very bottom of the frame, there is oh my a God. boom mic visible. That's fantastic. It looks so out of place. I like couldn't be- it's so fu- I couldn't believe it when it's I so saw it. It's so funny to me that you- yeah. It's so funny to me that you have to like keep the mics so close to the frame cuz you just need all that proximity to pick up the audio. Yeah. In my experience, a lot of times I'll I will put a boom mic a certain distance from a person and it looks absurdly close to them. But uh-huh. when you look at it through the the viewfinder of the camera, it's totally invisible. And so nice. that like that threshold of like you're close enough to capture the sound, but just out of frame is pretty small. I, I while we're on the topic, um, before I interrupted, um, but I wanted to ask you a technical question about miking. Okay. Since since I've been like doing recording for this podcast and stuff, I've been like more aware of like audio engineering and like mic placement and all that stuff. And how do talk show hosts have such clean audio feeds? Talk show hosts? Yeah. Like like Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah. Uh you, What technology exists that can pick up their voices and no like uh sound of clothing or anything like that and they're also like walking around the stage. Lav mics. Wireless lav mics. Uh what are those? Lavalier mics is what that's short for or lavalier depending on who you ask but it's like yeah a lapel mic it's just the one that like clips to your tie or lapel and you'll notice how does you'll notice how does that not pick up all the the noise of the rustling clothing well if it's on the outside of the clothing it's uh those are pretty like directional mics like their pickup pattern is pretty small so they're Uh, not picking up a lot of ambience around them and typically those mics are on some uh, little clip device. So it's like, a, it's like a little spring-loaded thing that kind of holds the mic out from the person maybe a few millimeters. So it's not yeah. like colliding with clothing and, and ties and all that. Got it. Like when you, when you have a lavalier mic underneath clothing, so... Sometimes people have these little uh, devices that adhere to a person's skin and it goes underneath the clothing. That's a lot harder to isolate from rustling. But if you see a talk show host with a mic on that's visible, where you can like see it on their tie or on their lapel, that's like way more likely that you're going to get a clean signal. And that's how I do all of my miking too, because you're just always going to get a clean feed if you mount a mic on the outside of someone's clothes where you can see it today's show brought to you by lavalier mics you're always going to get a clean feed no matter how you hold it (laughs) brought to you by milton bradley milton bradley we need to wrap up yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we do i'll give my final thoughts second to you (laughs) okay i don't have a lot to say um about this movie it's like hard to 
give thoughts that wrap up the movie in a nice bow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this movie is great for the effect it has on people. This is one of my favorite show to another person movies. Like if there's ever a, a, a situation. Yeah. Um, I'm like, I think this will be like a great group movie to watch. Cause it's like, you can laugh at it and also be mesmerized by it and completely dumbfounded by it. Yes. All within the, the time span of the movie. Uh-huh. Um, so I think it's cool. Uh, I like the director. I've seen a few other of his movies. And they're all pretty solid, I think. They're all super old-fashioned. And not all of them are as gimmicky as this one. Uh-huh. I think, like, Belle de Jour is his most famous one. And other stuff. But I think it's good. I think he's a good director. I like that this one, like, it's obviously, like, a super... Uh, non-mainstream surrealist film but it's like the most gimmicky out of all of his and so it's like this is the one that would appeal most <laughs> to other people yeah and it's like yeah borderline unwatchable <laughs> to like the well, average it's like it's a spectacle yeah. like man what's an example like there are plenty of movies that i think like are not gimmicky and that are great but i would want to watch with other people like i wouldn't be like it's like, hey, we should watch Manchester by the Sea because it's a super gripping like drama with a lot of emotion and like real life stuff mm-hmm. in it. That's like a movie for me. That's not a movie for the right. us. Right, 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 right. So this movie, I really like. I'm going to keep showing it to people. I'm going to try to work through a little bit more of his movies even though I already canceled my Criterion Collection subscription because I went a awful a few weeks without watching anything and then not I a felt, true film holder yeah i felt bad i'm like i'm not even watching the movies Man, anymore such a poser you're not into film i know the criterion collection <laughs> and so i'll give this movie a 9.2 exterminating Shut angels up, stop that out of no, seven dude. let's keep classic film hole alive so you need to try on this. So I'll give this movie 9.2. Keep all of the silence in the edit. chicken claws out of 10 that's good i think i said that early on earlier on in this recording so you had that but i'll give it to you that's great this is a good movie uh i this is my first time watching this movie like on thursday and then I watched it again today in preparation for this in trying to dissect uh, any kind of hidden meaning or anything I didn't pick up on in the first um, in the first viewing. But I think that I kind of approached it from two extremes both times watching it. I watched it 
while not paying attention at all um, on Thursday, at least not in a significant way, because I, I felt like I just kind of understood what was going on. Uh, and I was just in a particular state of mind. And then uh, today, watching it, just trying to take as much notes as possible and try to figure it out as much as possible, the mean interpretation, I think, yielded something really good, which is that it's not really meant to be glossed over nor figured out completely. So I think I have a really nice uh, first encounter with this movie. And for that... Well, I'll say that I also really enjoy all of the surrealism. I like the red herrings. Uh, I like that this movie doesn't feel the need to explain itself at any point. And so it makes me able to theorize about it uh, forever. And nothing may ever be right or wrong. So really fun movie to discuss for that reason and for that I'm going to give this a 9.2.75. What? (laughs) Out of 10. Your rating has two two decimal points in it. (laughs) I I, I realized that after I said it. I meant to say 2.275, maybe. Okay, 2.275, pretty low score, <laughs> but... Out of 10. Put it in the books. Uh, small, solid gold boxes of pills. Thanks for listening this week. Our music is by W. Look them up at at underscore W on Instagram. That's underscore the word double and two use editing this week is done by one of the following three people raul flores trevor maury grace fawcett oh thank you insert name <laughs> wherever you're listening give us a good rating connect with us at at film pod on twitter and instagram thanks again we'll see you next week see you next week Special thanks to really just us this week. I don't think any any normal film holders were present for this. So, thank you for those who have supported Film Hole this entire time. But especially Brady Goodman for uh, hosting services that he provides to us and continued support. Of course, of course, cannot be forgotten. And thanks for Grace Fawcett for being and. An actual fan and an obligatory fan for being my partner and our editor. Yeah. And just thanks to Grace Fawcett for being. Yeah. That's what I'm saying.